Howdy, howdy. This is TJ Murphy, and welcome to another episode of Adventurous Entrepreneurs. My guest today is Chris Bloomquist, co-founder and VP of talent at The Talent Mine. Chris is an engineer, father, entrepreneur, husband, adult Lego enthusiast, man after my own heart, and ultimate Frisbee coach. He's an empathetic leader with a deep understanding of his why, both personally and professionally, who gives back to others in their career by sharing his own missteps and learning opportunities, which we dive deep into throughout this episode. I walked away with a few pages of notes myself, so get your pen and paper out, my friends, because this is a value-packed episode. Just a few of the golden takeaways Chris shares are a crash course in entrepreneurship 101 how to hire the right people, career advice, and how to land a job, why getting sales experience is critical, and managing mental health as an entrepreneur. So without further ado, this is me and Chris Bloomquist. Welcome to the Adventurous Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, TJ Murphy. Since quitting my corporate nine to five and starting a business while backpacking through Asia back in early 2017, I've had the privilege of learning from some incredibly adventurous entrepreneurs. Through these conversations and my own journey, I've learned that much like in life, entrepreneurship is an adventure. On this podcast, I explore the journeys of top performing leaders in their fields. These wide ranging conversations include tactical business advice, how I built this insights, lessons in leadership, life hacks, travel stories, favorite hobbies, and insights into living a purposeful and joy-filled life. Adventures await us, so let's dive in. Hey, hey, Chris. Welcome to Adventurous Entrepreneurs. Thanks. Thanks for having me, TJ. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. I've been stoked for this one. Ever since we first met, I I really resonated with your energy, so I'm excited to dive into it. Why am I here, man? Ditto. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, I always like to start by diving into the hero's journey. And today you're the hero. Cool. And from my research, I noticed that your journey hasn't been a straight line, so to speak. So please fact check me when I pass the mic over. But from my understanding, you studied computer engineering at Iowa State and started your career as a software engineer before getting into sales and then back into application development before getting on the path you're on now, which has led you to start two businesses, the one currently being a talent acquisition company called The Talent Mine. So can you tell us a little bit about your story leading up to you becoming the adventurous entrepreneur you are today? Absolutely. Great question. So um, I'll start with, I, I always knew I wanted to be an engineer. And I always really, once I got into my freshman year of high school, knew I wanted to be a computer engineer. Now, I graduated in the 90s. Um you know, computers at that time were still emerging, even in the home, they weren't standard everywhere and they're just starting to happen. So I, I kind of came into the golden age of software engineering in that regard. And what I knew is that, you know, a computer engineer makes software and then that's the only job you could have. So what do I do? I go to Iowa state, I get my engineering degree and I take a software engineering job. because That's what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Not realizing how narrow my mindset was in that realm and how many opportunities that were even at that time and how they've grown since, you know, to be an engineer doesn't necessarily mean you write software. You can be a project manager. You can be a consultant. You can be a business analyst or a project manager or, you know, any number of things. And so, um, you know, you're right. I did start off as an engineer and I'm proud to be one. And I learned that a, I didn't love the actual act of writing code. Unfortunately, (laughs) I tried several (laughs) times and I could do it. I'm capable. 
but it didn't bring me joy. What brings me joy is solving business problems. And that's how I eventually got into the, you know, building teams and becoming a, a recruiting professional. But, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It wasn't a, a straight ahead journey. It wasn't a premeditated thing. I didn't think when I grew up, I want to run a tech recruiting firm. I, I didn't even know what that discipline was, you know, in the early 2000s. So um, I got here through experiences and failing many times before succeeding. Honestly, that's the best way to end up where you are today. Through your failures, right? <laughs> exactly. We've got to learn from our failures. So let's bring things forward to exactly that, what you're focused on today. What are you focusing on here? We're at the end of February, 2023. What's going on at the Talent Mine? Uh, good question. So um, because I've done tech recruiting for just my 16th year, um, if this ends up being a recession, it'll be my fourth. And I, I can you know, knock on wood, say that I've survived. I financially and career-wise survived every recession I've been in. Um, and it's not through any level of magic other than hard work, but I, I don't want to just work hard for hard sake, hard work's sake. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to innovate. And so what we're doing today, this isn't even public knowledge, so I'll, I'll make it public knowledge now. Awesome. Um, we're going to be launching a new um, services division um, called uh, Calmine Career Services. Um, this is new even since you and I met, by the way. And, cool. and the idea is going to be that, you know, I've had so many people, we've had so many people come to us asking for career advice, resume. LinkedIn, you know, job searching strategies, negotiation advice, like the how to land a job is um, unfortunately not really a, a class that's taught in academia, right? It did. It's learned from the school of hard knocks. Yep. And um, the reality is it is a discipline. It can be learned. It can be taught and it can be mastered like any skill. And so we're going to make, instead of just having a resume service, we are going to have career services and it's going to be soup to nuts on, Hey, from ideation to, you know, what's your, why, why are you on the job market? What are you passionate about? What are you looking for? Like, forget the resume for a moment. Tell me about what your goal is. And then we'll start at the beginning and say, well, based on that, now we can look at your resume. Now let's point you to resume or job search resources to find those positions. Um, let's talk about how do you engage with people? How do you create opportunities, not just apply to them? And so I'm um, really excited as an organization will be launching this. I think it's long overdue. Um, I've personally done this in my career time and time again, pro bono just to pay it forward. And that's great. But uh, I have to also balance the fact that, you know, my time and my team's time is valuable and it's Absolutely. a valuable service that people are actually wanting and if we do it right, what's going to end up happening is we're not just going to cater to technology professionals. It's going to be for anyone that's in a professional setting wanting to, to further their career. And so by making it a, um, you know, a, a discipline that we're offering, a new service model, we'll be able to reach a larger audience as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It is long overdue. And you know, going into a recession, if that's the case, it's going to be something that's obviously sure. needed. But even yeah. if that's not the case. It's always something that's needed because I know when I was in school, high school, college, those just were not skills that were taught. They're not there was, taught. There's no resources. And it's probably the most important skill to learn because how do you, what's the whole point of going to college is to right? launch your career. How do I get a career? Well, I don't know. What do you mean? You don't know. I'm, I'm going to college to do this, right? <laughs> yeah. You'd think it'd be like one-on-one level stuff, but absolutely. And maybe it is in some, some programs, but certainly was not accessible. Not with the rigor that it needs to be. I think, I think universities that they, they get 
they all, you know, any good university is going to have a career services center and they're going to give you a taste of this, but it, I think it also needs to be something that anyone that has a gross growth mindset is going to want to reevaluate after they graduate anyway, you know, after their first job and realize, okay, now that I know it is to be a working professional, now I have a better view on this. And now I'm ready to basically accept that information and apply it beyond just, you know, your view of the working world when you're in academia. Mm-hmm. And it's not a one and done thing. I mean, throughout your career, awesome. this is something that you consistently and constantly are going to be working on. So yeah. having those skills, having the resources, having a team that know the ins and outs and are literally having their fingers on the pulse of what's going on valuable. in the job market. That is tremendously valuable. So you've started two companies now mm-hmm. and you've been employee numero uno at another. So I'm curious if you're okay with diving into a bit of entrepreneurship 101 from your experiences. Absolutely. Yeah. If you look back at your career, say over the last five to 10 years, were there any specific decisions you made that you view in retrospect as being really critical? Or is there anything that you said no to that you were tempted to say yes to that ended up making all the difference? Such a good question. And I'll, I'll even add to it and say, um, prior to the last two companies, if you look back at AltaSource back in Gosh, this would have been 2010. I was their first hire, but not the owner. So I this is my third startup, but this you're right, the the last two of where I founded. And I guess if I were to boil it down, I was just open to the opportunities each time. Um and that just led to such creative results. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, my my uh my story in a nutshell. So when I my first sales job was actually working at Best Buy selling laptops in 2002, part of a my first recession, really. And I lived mm-hmm. in Seattle. Well, I just moved here, really. I was a one year you know, of experience out of Iowa State as an engineer, um, very little opportunity, but I knew I needed to work. And so I took a job for $10.50 an hour. Woo-hoo. Best Buy in Bellevue, I helped open that store selling laptops. But that was my first internship, really, not internship, internship into sales, right? And so that was a critical thing, but I was, I was open to it. I didn't come to the job market with ego that, oh, I'm worth $50,000 and all this. Hey, you're worth it. You can get. <laughs> yep, 100%. And sometimes it's not a lot when everyone's on the market. And so you have to be open to opportunities and saying, well, okay, the trade-off is I'm not going to be well compensated, but what am I going to gain? Mm-hmm. Well, Best Buy at that time gave me a chance to become a sales professional when I had no experience. That was an investment on their part, even if it was small, to give me a chance to learn how to sell. I'd never done it. By the letter of the law, I wasn't even qualified to do it. Now, I knew computers. I'm an engaging person, I guess, enough to, to build trust. And so, you know, again, at that point, I was open to opportunities. When I, when I went to um, AltaSource, my first startup, I had left at that time. I was making well over six figures early in my career without children or, you know, any kind of responsibilities other than my, my wife and I and doing really financially well at Robert Half. And I hated life. I wasn't happy. I was burned out. And at that point, I said, you know, um, we had a baby, our first baby on the way. And rather than hunker down and say, well, I need to, you know, be a provider and all this, I quit without a job. I've done that multiple times in my career because I knew I wasn't happy and I wanted to be open to opportunities, like genuinely. What that led to was going to AltaSource as their first recruiter, taking a 75% pay cut to do it. 
to launch their business, not because they undervalued me, because that's all they really had. That's all, they had. That's all they had to offer. Yeah. But the flip side was you look at my resume or my LinkedIn, I went from being a senior recruiter at Robert Half, and they would have promoted me and I didn't want it, to being the first recruiter at a startup and built a recruitment practice and learned what it's like to be in a startup and drove their culture and built the team and went to the Inc. 500 after three years. Like yeah. we killed it. But for that to happen, I had to be able to check my ego and say, okay, this is all they have to pay me. It's less than I've made in five years by a lot. And I'm going to choose to do this because I want to do this for the opportunity itself. And I'm going to bet on me. I'm going to bet that and the organization, I'm going to bet on myself and the people I'm working with that this is going to work out. And it did. Now, I never made the same amount of money again for a number of years. Yeah. And I don't think about that. And I think about that time, I think about that was some of the most glorious years of my career and I've never been happier. And you cannot put a price tag on happiness. Because I mean, you you hear it time and time again about extremely high earners, high net worth. The money does not buy does not buy happiness. If anything, nope. it it just once you your soul for it. Threshold and you can pay your bills and have a quality of life. At some point, it really doesn't matter. It's about working with great people. And again, you know, to answer your question again, it's, it's, I was every time in my career, I've been open to new opportunities, like genuinely open. Yeah. And there was a couple of great points that you made. I think for anybody, whether you have aspirations of starting a business someday, or you're going to, you know, build up your career working within an organization, having an experience where you can work on your sales skills is going to be invaluable. And even if you have never sold anything in your life, finding those opportunities early on, because with no sales experience, you're probably not going to earn very much, but the experience is going to be invaluable and invaluable. serve you exponentially moving forward. Clean how to sell yourself. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. You got to be able to sell yourself, whether that's in a job interview to right. key stakeholders, when you're pitching a project internally, whatever the case may be, yep. having those skills is so important and being open to opportunities. And in your case, taking the risks to get those invaluable experiences. Always bet on yourself. Always bet on yourself. Always it's on so yourself. much more valuable than yep. the salary you might make yep. in the beginning. Of course, you got to make enough money to pay your bills. There's a baseline, but beyond, after that, it's gravy, you know? Yeah. Can't take it with you. <laughs> exactly. Can't take it with you. Was there something you were told you had to do that everyone told you you should do that you decided not to? Was there anything like that throughout your, your Sales. career? I mean, yeah. it, it um, early on when I, I mean, this is before I graduated and then shortly after um, you know, I, I met my wife basically in college and we got married young and all this. And so everyone, especially in her family, as they get to know me, um, and they were other, her family was full of engineers, basically. Okay. They've been telling me for years, Chris, why aren't you in sales? You need to be doing sales. Like, it's great. You're an engineer. You're not in the right job. And I didn't listen. I, I, I mean, I heard it but it didn't really sink in. It was in the back. Okay, thanks. I appreciate that's good perspective. And I go back to my engineering job and wonder why I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and so I did that long enough. And, uh, you know, for four years, basically in two different companies where I was given some of the most enriching engineering jobs you could possibly imagine. I mean, 
usually a junior software engineer in my case, you know, you're, you're doing a little feature, a function, you're making a, but, a button different on a page. Yeah. I was in the cutting edge of embedded devices, working in manufacturing, um, like with the, uh, I was in the meat processing, believe it or not. And without going into all the details, you know, I was, my software was responsible for, you know, millions of dollars of revenue on probably a wow. weekly basis. Like, and I was the only person in the company really doing this work. I had my own test lab. I built, you know, and I didn't know at the time because I was fresh out of school, but I was basically the business analyst, the project manager, the software developer, the tester, the implementation specialist, soup to nuts. They flew me out on site to, to install my software. I mean, amazing job. Crazy. And I wasn't happy. Yeah. I love the people I worked with. I, I believed in the organization, but the work itself was not bringing me joy. And so, you know, if I listened earlier to people saying, why aren't you in sales? Why aren't you in sales? That's how it finally happened, where I did that twice. I worked for, um, yeah, so uh, Tyson Chicken was the first company. And then uh, uh, Newcore Steel, some of the best bosses I've ever had, some of the most empathetic leaders I've ever had. I mean, I would say nothing but fantastic things about both organizations. The both companies made positions for me. And after doing that twice and realizing I'm really not happy with the work itself, it finally set in that, yeah, people are telling me I should do sales for a reason. And that's where I said, all right, I need to listen. And um, that's when I started betting on myself in a different way and realizing that just because I'm doing sales work doesn't mean I'm not an engineer anymore. I think that was, that was the hardest thing. I felt like I was divorcing myself from my career and my profession. And it's actually quite the opposite. I am, I'm leveraging that skill to this day, just in a different way. Yeah. And I think that's a great segue actually into my next question, because sure. in prepping for this conversation, you mentioned Simon Sinek, who I'm a big fan of. And the Not importance, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The importance of finding your why. And in your yeah, case, right. you know, having those experiences where you weren't happy, you weren't fulfilled in those early roles, I imagine helped you to figure out what your why was. So I'd love to just hear it. What is your why and how does it guide your behaviors and activities in your company today? Serving others. It, it, it's part of who I am. And that's, that's not me um, trying to do a humble brag or anything. It's more about my personality and um, realizing that the jobs I was, I was in, they weren't fulfilling that as a, as a human right? My mother is a retired social worker. She's done that for, you know, 30, 40 years. And I always, you know, took a page out of her book of, you know, serve others, help others, you know, and, and, um, you know, you look people in the eye, you respect them, no matter what their background is or yours, you meet as equals every time, you know, it could be the Pope or a homeless person on the street, you meet as equal and you serve others. And I get to apply so much servant leadership and, and servant um, mentality to being a recruiter and, and serving my clients and serving my candidates and serving my team. And, and it's not a choice, like it's who I am. And so rather than bury that, I like to express that. Mm-hmm. And this career path has let me, let me do that. That's why I still, after 16 years, I still, at the end of the day, you know, I could land a big client or a big sale, but what still really brings me joy is just helping someone get a job. <laughs> it, the fundamental of it. Um, so yeah, fi- finding my why was barely listening to who I am as a person saying, you know, am I really that analytical engineer that loves the journey of solving a problem? I mean, I, I will, I'll tell you TJ that the, the joy I get in my engineering jobs was when I, I delivered and it worked 
And the delivery part of engineering is maybe 5% of the time. Like <laughs> yeah. you don't have to sit not there the for long hours pouring no. over the code late at night. <laughs> it's not like you get to sit there, you know, for five weeks after you install something and say, oh, it's still working. I get to bask and it's working. Like, no, you, you go on to the next thing. And if you don't love the journey, then you're going to be lost. And I, you know, I didn't love the journey. I love the journey of serving people. I love the journey of getting people closer and closer to finding their next career and, and their calling and, or helping people find something new that they didn't realize until they talked to me. And we ask good questions, realize, why are you trying to get this kind of a job when really you should be doing this instead? And, and um, yeah, you, you, you've got to enjoy that journey to, to be successful. Yeah. And a fulfilling journey. I imagine it's got to be because yes. it is such a pivotal moment and a very anxiety driven moment for people that are out there on the job hunt looking for their next company. So I'm curious to get into how the, the sausage is made, so to speak. Like, what is your approach to identifying top talent for the clients that, that you're working for? And how do you go about assessing their potential for success within that company? That's a great question. I'm going to amend it with, we're not, believe it or not, we're not always looking for top talent. Yeah. Maybe that was the wrong way best. to say it. No, it's not. It's, a, it's, it's great to think about, but yeah. we're looking for the best fit. Yeah. And, and sometimes the best fit means, you know, there are five of the people I could talk to that are more talented and that are smarter at what they do, but maybe their arrogance gets in their way. And so they're not the best fit for the client, for the client yeah. or, you know, you overshoot a position, realize, yeah, I can find you someone that's been a director of engineering, but all you really need is a senior developer. And when, why are we going to this director level search? I mean, it, you know, that's an extreme example, but the point is it's really about finding the right people at the right time in their lives to match with what the client's looking for. And I, I say it that way because we make it first and foremost about the candidate. The clients mm -hmm. may pay our invoices, but the candidate always drives the result, right? Yeah. If they're not fully vested in the position, um, qualified or have a desire for the position, if it's not a priority for them, it's never going to happen. doesn't matter if the resume is perfect. So, so our secret sauce is we really start and end. We're really with the candidate in mind and truly listening to what they want. I, we, we don't ever show a position to a candidate until I've had at least a 30 to 45 minute conversation about them. Because mm -hmm. we make the presumption that, oh, they applied to a position. They must be interested. We don't know that yet. We don't, they don't know that yet. They, they see it and they say, oh, yeah, I'm interested. But after describe that, it's going to be an hour long commute. Or, you know, this is a demotion in your career or, you know, actually this is you in five years, but you're not ready for this position. We don't know yet. Yes. So, you know, I, I never make the presumption that um, we can just, you know, plug in a person to a role. It's we our secret sauce would be we make it 100 percent about the job seeker. And if the position we have in front of us works out for them, great. And if not, let's talk about what can what can. Mm -hmm. So if you you start with that kind of mindset about making it right for the person that you're, 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 you're sitting across from you'll never go wrong. Yeah. And I think you, you may have just answered my next question, but I think I want to ask it anyway, sure. for people, I think part of making that experience positive is just not presuming that they're the right fit and, and just putting them through the the pipeline, if you will. But how do you ensure that candidates have a positive experience throughout the recruitment process, even if they don't end up getting the position. You care. Yeah. 
And um, to quantify that, pairing is a number of things. You, you ask really probing questions. You ask their why, right? That was Simon Sinek, right? How, why are you looking? How are you motivated? What are you best at? You make it all about them all the way through until you get an offer from the client that you know is probably 10K below what they're going to want and be happy with, even if through gritted teeth, that they're going to reject it, take the offer they got for 30K more elsewhere. And you genuinely celebrate their success, even though by the letter of the law, you failed. You, you failed for yourself, but they succeeded, right? You have to put the candidate first the entire way and you have to mean it. That's how you win. Um, a quick little aside in a success story I'll share. Um, I'll, the guy's name is Ryan. Um, I've known Ryan um, since 2006. So I, I was a rec junior recruiter at Robert Half in uh, January 2006. I probably met Ryan that summer or that fall. So I was still very early in the my own recruiting career. And he was a software engineer at the time. Um, I had several opportunities. You know, I, I think we submitted him for, for whatever reason, didn't work out, whether he didn't get it or didn't want the job. But we had a good initial meeting. Um, I ended up staying in touch with Ryan probably on an annual basis uh, for the next 13 years. Wow. <laughs> ended up placing Ryan last year for the first time in a leadership position, um, you know, three jobs after I had left and probably four jobs after his. But the point is, Ryan and I stayed in touch. Mm -hmm. We genuinely stayed in touch. So when I called him or reach out, he would respond. When he'd ping me, I would respond. That builds trust. So, you know, I didn't look at when I met Ryan back in 2006, like, oh, I met this guy in place. And so that's a failed opportunity. I looked at like, hey, I like Ryan. Ryan's great. And I don't have a job for him today. And I don't need to have a job for him today to build a successful professional relationship. And it came to fruition, you know, 13 years 13 later. Years later. It was the long ball game for sure. And, and I tell you what, he's really happy in his role. And, and, yeah. and in fact, took me to a cracking game to thank me and all this, which he didn't have to do. But but we become good friends and, and, you know, you have to really play the long game, I think, to, to really uh, be good in this profession. Yeah. And I think just in business in general, absolutely putting in the work to build meaningful relationships, not just can't one just coffee and then you never communicate ever again. Like if there's something there, if, if it's somebody you genuinely had a great conversation with, there was connection doing the work, like having reminders to, to follow up, to check in, to just see what's going on in their lives. Those things pay dividends and you may never see anything back from it, but. Right. You, and you have to, you have to give without expectation. Exactly. Exactly. So kind of scratching my own itch here as I'm growing my team, I'm curious, do you have any best practices that you would give for entrepreneurs who are building out their own teams and going through the hiring process. And specifically, what do you see companies doing right when it comes to hiring? And what do you see them doing that they should just stop doing immediately? Don't throw money at the problem. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I'm saying that from my own experience of, you know, my last organization where I was one of the founders, um, they threw money at me and I accepted it. And I don't want to say it's the worst decision I ever made, but it was not a happy experience. I, I'm glad I did it because it let me create a fantastic organization now, but I followed the money then and it absolutely was not the right choice. Um, I'm glad I had the experience to learn from it, but I have some battle scars. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, throwing, throwing money in a problem is, is not the answer. Um, 
Although I will say that the flip side of that coin is when you think about hiring, you know, you need to start with your own why. It's like, why, why would someone want to spend time with you and your organization? Why should they care about the talent mine or, or height, right? It's like, you, you, yeah. you better know your why enough to evangelize that to someone else, right? If you start with your own purpose and your mission and you have a mission and you better have a mission, by the way, <laughs> and you better have a value proposition and you better have a strong vision for all those things. Because if you can't, you know, have that for yourself, how could you possibly have that for someone else and expect that they want to follow you in your journey? Can't. So, um, you know, so start with that and, and, you know, throwing money at the problem. What I'm getting at is, you know, you, you, it's not about buying people's talent. Uh, you know, Simon Sinek, you probably know this, has a story about the, uh, the Wright brothers, you know, the Wright brothers story. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Yeah. The in a nutshell and sure, sure you know, is, you know, the Wright brothers, you know, of course they were the first to flight, but they were competing against another gentleman. Do you remember the guy's name, by the way, TJ, you can look it up. Know. You yeah. know, the story. So there was, there was two people trying to go for flight and the Wright brothers knew their why they, they believed in flight. They believed in it so much that, you know, they didn't take any income. They didn't, they didn't get any big funding. They just worked tirelessly until they accomplished their mission. And the people that worked with them also believed in flight. And that's important because the flip side is, as the story goes, there's another gentleman that was funded by the U.S. government, was followed by the New York Times, I think it was, and had all this publicity. And was was he was inspired by fame and fortune that happened to have flight tied to it. Mm -hmm. He didn't get there first. And the moment that the Kitty Hawk event happened, what did he do? He quit. He was out of there. His organization, he had all this money and power behind him. The moment he wasn't the first to that, he was done. And so, you know, to tie that together, you really have to believe in why are you doing what you're doing? It can't be to turn a profit. That's not a purpose. That's a result. Profitability is a result of hard work, great vision, great people coming together and succeeding together. So that can never be the purpose. If that's your purpose, it's empty, it's soulless, and you will fail at it. You'll fail. You'll find people that are that are initially tied to that as well because you'll probably throw money at them and pay them more than they're worth and all these things. And they'll think, oh, I'm making a bunch of money. And the moment that there's nothing to stand on, the moment there's an issue, they're gone. And yep. it won't be for more money. It'll be because they're happier somewhere else. So yeah, hundred percent. I think getting people bought into the vision, the culture before the money, that's what's going to create somebody that loves to come to work, that loves Absolutely. what you're about. And that's going to stick around and help you achieve your goals. People can always jump ship and find more money in this day and age and so you have more, to, more often than not. And you have to be equitable. I, I would say yeah. too, that I, I think where clients maybe fail is they'll say, well, I've got this much budget to hire. And it's like, well, what you really should be thinking is, look, if you, if you want to buy a car tomorrow, you know, mm -hmm. and you have a specific make and model in mind, it has an intrinsic value in the market for a time, a place and a location. And so do people, you know, yeah. account managers aren't going to make $20 an hour. That's below market. The account managers at any organization have a, set range probably between 80 and 140k depending on experience that they should earn and so you have to be equitable when you pay so i don't want to um be so cavalier to say that oh yeah you know it's it's la la land out there and you can just pay whatever you want and don't focus on the money focus on the vision you have to be fair and equitable and and you should really know what your competition is investing in their employees so that you're equitable and you're in line yeah but but the good news is 
if, if it's close, if you're in the range of what a position should pay, as long as you have a great vision and you can you can uh, impart that upon a potential employee and make sure that they're aligned, you know, you're, you're going to win. You're going to win because, you know, people don't make decisions over 5K here or there. They, they really don't. It, it, it fundamentally comes down to, well, is this the kind of, are these the kind of people I want to be working with? Is this the organization I want to be a part of? Is this, do I have a growth opportunity? Was that laid out before me? That's what wins. Yeah. Great advice. So Chris, this is a podcast about entrepreneurship, but one of the biggest hurdles that we all face and all successful entrepreneurs face at one time or another is living a well-rounded life and doing mm -hmm. the things that bring them joy with the people they care about most. What does living a well-rounded life look like for you? Great question. So um, for context, I'm married. I have two young daughters at grade school age. And, and uh, you know, it's really important to me and, and my wife that, that we are active parents. Uh, it, and it's a double entendre because active as in physically active, you know, we, we hike, we ski, we, you know, I, I coach my, my girls, uh, you know, ultimate Frisbee team and all that, but that. active with them in their lives. Right. So that we are taking time to, you know, coach their practices or, you know, take them to, to, you know, uh, their, their lessons or ski lessons, whatever it is. And, and to do that, that, you know, inherently will cut into, I guess what Americans would normally describe as like office hours, right? Where it's like, there's gonna be times between eight and five where, yep, that appointment's at 11 o'clock in, in the afternoon or in the morning. And I normally have a meeting at that time. Well, what's your choice? You, are you gonna choose to be at that meeting? Or are you gonna choose to be there for your child, right? Now, it may not always feel like you have a choice, but I would argue that, that post COVID, we do more now than ever. The employees, the, that that support organizations have never been more empowered than they are right now in their personal lives being a priority yeah. because most organizations now if you're not offering hybrid work flexible hours and making it about results then you just don't get it and and you can you know stomp and and get upset and say well gosh you know the way it used to be is you know come in eight to five and 801 you're late and all that you can do that, but the reality is, you know, you're not going to work for the army. You know, if, if you want to go join the military, that's great. And that will be regimented. But in the private sector, it does not work that way. What works now is hiring people that are goal oriented, that are results driven, and that expect and have an, a level of trust from their employer. And in return, you know, you hold them accountable. That's the hardest thing right now, I think. So, you know, bringing this all together, I've made it a point with the talent mind to say we're a lifestyle-based organization. No one's working on the clock. We're, we're about delivery. Something needs to be done, we do it. You know, if I have a client that hits me up late at night, I can make a choice to say I want to engage or not. Maybe I'll put my kids to bed first, but I'm making them the priority first and then I engage. But um, I always start with, um, I guess in both sides, it's delivery. Am I delivering for my family first? Am I delivering for my client's second, but both times as delivery. So I make those choices and I prioritize that. And, and when I do that, um, I always feel good about it. And, and you know, what's interesting too, is just kind of verbalizing this. I've never, you know, in my 16 year career made a choice for my family first, that was detrimental to my career. It wasn't like my client yeah. all of a sudden fired me because I took an hour longer to get back to them. 
if anything, they respect you more for totally. being the type of man that's going to put family first and, and prioritize they, and, that. And it inspires them. Yeah. I mean, I, I have clients probably come to me and they, they wouldn't say this necessarily, but they, I'm sure I have some level of, of trust built with my clients because I've made my family a priority first. And because I've actually told them that and still honored what my client needed. And they know that, you know, the, the verse is true that, hey, they need something, you know, drop of a hat. As long as I've got everything taken care of, yeah, I'm going to serve them, but never at the cost of my family. Do you have any rules or practices that enable you to just have that be the default and, and be designing that so that there's that room to always prioritize what's more important? Looking up the sky because usually the answer's up there, right, TJ? Yeah. <laughs> There it is. Um, I'll pull that one down. It's a great question. Uh, I don't know if I have any hard and fast rules. I do have some basic processes. So for example, um, what works for me, just uh, I, I am very regimented with my, my calendar. Mm-hmm. So um, I know, you know, I have a personal calendar, I have a professional calendar, but anytime that anything personal would overlap in my professional life, I always put my personal appointments on my professional calendar if it's during work hours. So that way I know that's the priority, right? And then give myself grace afterwards to, you know, hopefully not be late to that next call and put some buffer in there, that kind of yeah, thing. I do the same. It, it, you know, it's not perfect, but I think a majority of the time it helps so that I don't overextend myself. I think that's something that my my younger self did way too often that I'm much wiser and better at now. Not perfect, but certainly better at now is um, not overextending, trying to do too much, right? Um, so yeah, just that little mechanism of having... Again, anything that's personal that is in a normal business hours type of range, I put that on my professional calendar. Um, then after that, it's just a mindset. It's, it's you know, in the past when I was an employee of an organization, and I know it is harder, when, it feels harder when you're early in your career to say, well, you know, this personal thing's a priority, Mr. and Mrs. Supervisor. Um, mm-hmm. But again, I would, what I would say with any lessons I've learned, especially post-COVID is the the right employers are going to give you if you ask for those things they're going to give you those boundaries and you and you never ask or you never give what you don't ask for yep. so gotta ask yeah gotta ask and 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 be bold about it and say this is what and this is why and here's how i'm still going to deliver with my own work commitments right you can't just mail it in and do less yeah. you know, so have, you a plan. Have, have a plan have a plan have the action steps you're when you're still, making that I'm pitch deliver and, and how i'm yeah. still going to provide value as i need to and all that and it's equitable and all those things but but um but yeah just it's a, it's a choice. At the end of the day, it is a choice. And I choose to make those things a priority before anything else. I respect that. So big segue here, but something we were talking about before we started recording. Many entrepreneurs and just, just society in general experience some form of anxiety and depression. And mm-hmm. thankfully, this is a topic that is getting less and less taboo, I think, to talk about which is incredibly important for all of us. So you have talked about your experience with depression publicly, and if it's still okay with you, I'd love to talk about it a little bit. Awesome. Can you take us back through a tough time or a period you suffered from depression or when you thought it was all over and walk us through what you said to yourself, what helped you and you know how you found the help that you needed to, to get out of that? And ultimately, how did you get out of the funk? If it wasn't for my clinical depression and owning it and confronting it, I wouldn't be talking to you today. And I don't mean like from a, you know, suicidal standpoint, although I can have a lot more empathy. I got, I, 
I understood it. I didn't get close to that, but I under, I got dark enough where I understood why that happens. And that's a scary yeah. statement, but um, more from a philosophical standpoint, if it wasn't for my clinical depression, I wouldn't have founded the talent mine because I wouldn't have had the courage to have a work divorce from my old business partner. <laughs> there you go. Yep. And, and so I guess the, the, in a nutshell was that um, if I, if I go back to finding your why I was basically at my last organization, not able to be my true self. I couldn't impart all of my values, my compass, my, my goals, my, the way I work and the way I wanted to work with who I worked with. And so I was always having to put a brave face onto my team who I hired and who I tried to inspire to work for me. In the meantime, business partner and I are, are at odds. Mm -hmm. And the longer that happened, the more it really just ate at my soul. And I think, you know, COVID was the kind of the final straw, right? Where I'd been slowly sinking into that. You don't realize, you know, when you go into depression, what I would say is at first, it's like any kind of disease or illness. You don't realize it at first, you know, when you Wait, not like a button just goes off. Oh, I'm depressed now. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. and I'll say this as a cancer survivor, you don't, you don't know or realize what well, today woke up and I have, I have two cells of thyroid cancer. You're, you're, you don't know that your body, you don't know when you wake up one day and you have cancer, but six months later when it's grown and you start to feel it now, you know, I have cancer. And then you really start to feel, so you have to address it. Right. And so COVID really, I think for many of us, forced us to really think, gosh, what, what brings me joy? What, what is my life all about? You know, I'm, we're stuck at home we're disconnected. We have it. And, and as tough as all that was, it's also an opportunity to pause and say, what the bleep do I want in my life? Absolutely. And I, at that time we lost a hundred percent of our business within two months. So the only thing I was holding on to was really money. Because the, the, you know, and the fact that, and money and ego, because I built the company and I, oh, I got to, you know, be the savior and stick to it. And I can't, if I, if I sell, I failed, you know, all that ridiculous mindset. And once it was all taken from me, essentially, yeah. I don't sound like the victim, but you know, the business was taken due to COVID yeah. and it had nothing left. It's like, well, what, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And so, um, it, it helped me start to basically cleanse my work life and say, okay, who do I want to work with? What do I want to be about? How do I want to do this? I, I knew a lot of those things, but I wasn't brave enough to go after them. And so I ended up having this conversation with my now business partner, Todd Goldenberg, who's amazing and one of my closest friends for years. And, and we ended up having this, um, this kind of guy's trip. My wife's like, you know, you are depressed. You got to get out of here. So the impetus to getting out of that was a couple of things. One, I'm taking a little bit of me time and my spouse supporting that because it was, you know, hurting our own relationship and it needed to happen. So took some time with, with, you know, close personal friend and just got out of town and just kind of had a road trip of what do you want to do in life? It led to the talent mine. I, I didn't know, you know, back in 2020 that I went to Boise for the first time in a car with Todd, that we're going to found a new company. Yeah. But um, that's what happened. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and so it, it took, it took, uh, I guess, you know, like many people say, kind of hitting a low, but then confronting it. And so I did seek you know, medical help. I sought uh, therapy. Um, those things in combination did, uh, did work. But what really underlying though, I mean, I needed those things to basically go from down here to here. 
but the therapy itself and the, you know, taking medication for a while, that didn't get me from here to being my normal Chris self. But really it took was going back to my purpose, my vision, my why, and realizing that through the talent mind. That's what ultimately got out of it was like doing what I knew I should be doing and what I want to do and how I want to do it. And with someone that I have complete trust and respect with that aligns with my vision and my values. He has the, not the same, but similar, you know, fundamentally similar values. And what's really cool is because we don't have the exact same mindset, but shared values, we end up having different perspective, which leads to better results. So, you know, if I did things every, every which way, my way, every time, we would not be nearly as successful as if, you know, a good half the time we're taking Todd's ideas and imparting his way of doing things. And, and, you know, we, you, we very much meet in the middle, right? Yeah. Um, and this wasn't part of the question, but one thing we should touch on, can we talk about entrepreneurship a little bit in terms of how to do it? Please. Um, cause I just realized as I'm talking about this, it is not a solo sport. You can be a solopreneur but don't do it alone. No. That is the best decision I ever made. I, I made that mistake early on. <laughs> it's too much. Oh it's too much. You, you, you can't, I don't care how smart or ambitious or visionary you are. You cannot, you know, say to me that, you know, uh, you know, Bill Gates was a great software engineer, CFO, you know, um, marketing professional. That's nonsense. He, he wouldn't say that. And that's not the case. You don't do this alone. It, it is a team sport. So even if you have a vision where you're going to be a solopreneur, my God, have a great network, have other entrepreneurs that you work with, you bounce ideas off of. I regularly reach out to at least a half dozen, if not more, entrepreneurs that do similar but different work than I do. And in fact, I'm going to do this call with my friend Jen next week. Jen, how's your business doing? What are you seeing out there? We share war stories. We share ideas. We share leads. But it's a team sport and and directly a team sport with Todd and I because, you know, I can give him all the operation stuff and I'm doing more of the IP and the, and the, the vision of the organization. And we're at a point right now to scale. We're like, well, neither one of us has really, you know, perfected marketing, you know, the way you have TJ and whatnot and, and, and SEO. So we're, we're hiring that out to, to someone else to do that because we're not experts in that, but we know we need it. Yeah. So, you know, don't go it alone. It's absolutely a team sport and you got to check your ego about it and realize you cannot, possibly expect yourself to be good at all these different disciplines to run a business. It's not realistic. No, hundred percent. That was the biggest breakthrough for me was checking my ego and realizing, I don't know what I don't know. And you don't need to, <laughs> Yeah, you don't need to, honestly, the path to success is finding a tribe, finding people who are where you want to go or on a similar path and sharing resources, sharing ideas, asking for help, asking questions, that was the biggest breakthrough I've had in my business and just in my life was realizing that I need a community around me. Even if at this point in my business, yes, it is me doing most of the work. I still need to have that community around me to keep inspiring me, to keep showing me what comes next, to Absolutely. show me the resources that are out there. And then as you grow and have the you know financial pieces to be able to take off some of the hats and put it onto the head of an expert. And that's when you can really focus yeah. on where you're going to get the best utility out of yourself, where your expertise are really going to shine and you're going to be able to have the biggest impact in your business. Yep. yep for sure. 
I love that. Glad we had that segue. So yeah, it's good. <laughs> I think it's uh it's a good place for us from both to, of us. <laughs> yeah, let's do it, man. So that's a good place for us to kind of segue to wrapping up. And I always like to ask this choose your own adventure question. So you can pick which one you'd like to answer or both if you so desire. So what's your favorite place you visited in say the past five years? Or what is a recent adventure you went on? And in either case, what was it like? What made it so memorable? Maybe a favorite meal or or drink you had, something you learned along the way. Just give us some yeah. details. Gosh, so many. So um, yeah, I, I'll start with my wife as a saint because she's very supportive of me having my own um, adventures. And, and we certainly vacationed together and just did. Yeah. Um, and then she vacations on her her own as well. But anyway, we had a, uh, my first real overseas guy trip uh, last year. And uh, me, and my business partner, and, and his good friend as well. The three of us ended up going to uh, Europe for, gosh, for two weeks. We went to um, to Prague, to Budapest, and to um, um, uh, the Netherlands. Um, help me out. Uh, the, the big place in the Netherlands is the um, Amsterdam. Amsterdam, Amsterdam. yeah. So <laughs> <Duh>. <laughs> um, but Prague, yeah. So uh, great food story. So Prague uh, is just for anyone listening out there, first of all, fantastic place to go. It is not the Eastern Bloc. It is Central Europe. Look it on a map. Yeah. Um, the Czech Republic gets a, uh, a very bad rap for being you know, the Eastern Bloc that left the Soviet Union and all that. But they're Central Europe. And it makes sense because when you go there, it's like being where I'm from in Nebraska, where it's literally farm country and you know meat and potatoes kind of, kind of thing. And Prague is the metropolitan center of all of that, where it's a little higher brow. So uh, from a food standpoint, I learned that um, Budweiser is not American at all. Uh, in fact, it uh, is from originally from the Czech Republic. Uh, it was Budweiser, okay. and I think it, if I get the story right, it was a German that went to Czech Republic that, with some other folks, in, invented this, you know, Budweiser Pilsner. It's six or seven hundred years old, something crazy like that. And we went to a bar that was the original you know, Budweiss before it became Budweiser in the United States and got sold and replicated and all this. So we yeah. had the original Budweiser before it was called Budweiser and the people don't know about Prague, but um, beer in the, in the Czech Republic is literally cheaper than water. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Sounds like my kind of place. <laughs> like a sign like this. And a little other thing I, I learned is the head of the beer is the best part. They don't, oh, yeah. like in the States, we, we won't get off the phone. They knock it off. The next time you go to a pub and you order a beer, tell them, keep all the head. It's the best part. And it is. It's the creamy stuff at the top and it's the treat. And and so when we ordered, it's like, well, okay, what kind of beers do you want? It's like, what do you mean? What kind? You want beer? Here's beer. They had one yeah. kind. Yeah. One beer. <laughs> this is beer. beer. <laughs> That's it. And, uh, and that was a great experience. And then uh, the libations party, you think of yeah, drink all night. I don't. But uh, the, the big thing in Czech Republic is also... Um, uh, absinthe. So yeah. we had some of the most amazing absinthe-based cocktails at this place called the Absintheray in Prague. Oh, wow. And uh, just kind of a, a really kind of a niche little um, place where the great vibe and all the rooms painted green and all this ornate stuff and great artwork in there. And the cocktails were works of art. Um, not to mention, you know, of course, the, the great, you know, uh, meat potato dishes, what else we had. Oh, yeah, the food. I, I remember... For some reason, the, the the libations were the most memorable part of being in Prague and the history and everything else. And uh, as a great adventure, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I love that. Prague is definitely on my list. Should and 
just reminds me I'm, I'm way overdue for having a boy's trip. So there you go. <laughs> need to reach out, reach out to the gang and get something on the books. Absolutely. Oh, awesome. Chris, before we close things out, do you have an ask or, or parting advice for everyone listening? Great question. So, um, beyond entrepreneurship being a team sport, um, man, I just hope you find your why out there, whoever's listening, right? I, it, it, it is true. Like if you don't know about Simon Sinek, like Teach and I do, please go. Great place to start. His, you know, great, it is. And it's important because when you know your why, it gives such purpose to your life. So when I think about recruitment and my life and all this, it, it, it is a vocation. It's not a job for me. I would, I would quite literally do this for free. And I have actually, I've done it pro bono I've, and I've helped my people with their careers because it's what I do and it's what I love to do. And, and it's because I know that I'm making a lasting impact on another human when I help them with their career. And so, you know, the, the best piece of advice I ever got that actually I'll, I'll end it with this, I started my entrepreneurship journey really was my, uh, my old, um, a director at Nucor Steel, his name is Walter, great guy. And, and I think he was projecting a little bit when he told me this advice, he said, Chris, this is when I was quitting. He said, Chris, you never want to wake up and be really good at something that you hate. And, and that easily happens to many of us. You know, you're mm-hmm. been a financial planner, so you have to keep doing that. It's all you know, the heck with that. The average human has seven different career changes, seven in their lifetime. Think about that. You, just because you got a degree in computer engineering doesn't mean you can't run a tech recruiting firm. And you know my, that profession didn't exist when I graduated. So, you know, really find your why, find your purpose, find your tribe, like you mentioned, TJ. Be around people that really motivate and inspire you as part of that, and um, and you'll find success however you define it. Yeah, love it. Where can people find and support you online, websites, socials, sure. things like that? Feel free to connect with me with, with, the, with the message on LinkedIn. I, I do yes. not accept um, unsolicited messages, yeah. but to TJ's credit, he sent me a nice message. This is why we know each other. How we connected. Yep. Cold, cold LinkedIn message. Chris Bloomquist at The Talent Mine. Um, uh, our company is www.thetalentmine.jobs. So yeah. thetalentmine.jobs where you can find us. And by the way, in a month, you're going to see Talent Mind 2.0 launched and uh, it'll be much, uh, much improved. And we'll offer this extra career services offering that we're going to have as well. So there you go. That's exciting. And we'll put all of that in the show notes for everyone listening. And this time of recording will probably will not come out for another month or two. So we'll look for the link to the new career uh, development. There you go. Offerings. And I just want to say, Chris, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I've taken a ton of notes and I got a lot out of it. So I know everyone listening will as well. So thanks for having me, TJ. Appreciate you. Likewise. All right. Have a good day. To all of our adventurous listeners, thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Please be sure to subscribe, download, and share this on social media or with someone you know will get some value from it. Leaving a review goes a long way in helping people find the show. And I personally appreciate reading them when they come in. So please go drop one if you have the time. We'll see you all next week. And remember, whether we're talking about business or the things that bring us joy outside of work, life is meant for exploring. So go out there and live it one adventure at a time.